Hello and welcome to the Emerging Litigation Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Hagee. Or Hagee. I should just change the name. You know, I've never been able to say it clearly. And I would be remiss if I didn't say that this was a collaboration between my company, HB Litigation, my other company, Custom Legal Content, and Law Street Media, which is part of Fastcase. They're fine people. Attorney fees. You know you love them. Especially contingency fees. We all know about those. They can be whopping. They can grab headlines. They can raise eyebrows. Of course, what a lot of people don't realize is many of them get reduced. A multi-million dollar award can get knocked down to hundreds of thousands or completely wiped out altogether. Also, what a lot of people don't realize, I know they don't realize it, is that law firms can go for years. I'm talking about plaintiff lawyers here. Uh, Working on cases, spending money on them, going up against corporations with enormous budgets, no offense to corporations, before they ever see a dime. Plaintiff law firms, of course, can band together to fight cases. They also develop their own war chests and find sources of funding. In fact, it looks like there's an increase in contingency fee arrangements. One of the reasons for this, apparently, is the burgeoning litigation finance industry, which reportedly committed $2.8 billion toward uh, new deals in 2021. Recent survey of these funders said that uh, they now manage $12.4 billion in assets. That's a lot of assets. Some big, big, big lenders out there willing to assist firms in taking some of the risk off their shoulders and in return, enjoying some of the upside. Also looks like some of the big litigation firms typically associated with defending only corporations, they're getting into the act. Some well-known litigation giants are opening up plaintiff side practices. Some are doing quite well. Of course, I'm sure they're uh, doing all sorts of extra due diligence to avoid conflicts. And uh, some are finding it as a good business decision to take on these kinds of cases. It would actually be a good uh, subject for a podcast, I think. If you're not familiar with contingency fee arrangements, but you're curious, you should also know that there are a lot of ethical traps that you need to be cognizant of and avoid. So you may want to check your bar rules to stay out of trouble. Make sure you're on the straight and narrow. But when a big verdict uh, or settlement comes in, that's obviously huge for the individual plaintiffs. Never ignore the fact, though, that it's not all a bed of roses for some individuals because, well, they've probably suffered some serious physical harm or even death. So, you know, I wouldn't compare them to lotteries by any means. But uh, sources want to do the smart thing uh, when they get giant awards. In fact, before they get them, you can use these awards to build a source of capital for your law firm, building your personal wealth, maybe even enabling your firm to assist other plaintiffs who have been wronged. It's important to know what you're doing with the award or settlement, though, before it comes in. This is a case of, uh, you know, when counting your chickens is smart. It's always been a weird saying. I mean, you should count your chickens. You have to count them. Maybe the expression should be, don't count on your chickens. But you should know how many you have. I'd like to know how many I have. But to talk seriously about this issue, because God knows you're not going to get that from me. Like I said, you know, when, it, when a verdict or big settlement comes in, it's, it's a big day for the firms that shouldered a lot of litigation costs for years. But when they come in, that's exactly when it's too late to think about what to do with them. Unless you like seeing a lot of the funds go to the, the people at uh, the IRS. And they'll spend it wisely for you. 
no offense to the government. But fortunately, the government's also created a way to help you reap more of the benefits of, of such a verdict. And fortunately for you, I've got somebody here with deep financial management experience who specializes in advising trial lawyers how they can take full advantage of attorney fee structures. The concept may be familiar to you, but the landscape continues to evolve. And that's why we're doing a podcast on it. My guest today is Sam Dolce, an attorney with Milestone. Uh, Sam, who, by the way, is pretty good-natured, as his surname might suggest. He consults attorneys about qualified settlement funds, and if you don't know what those are, see, you've already learned something by listening to the Emerging Litigation Podcast with me, your host, Tom Hagee. He talks about these quite a bit, shares his insights on them, talks about fee deferrals and settlement planning. So he's the man. He got his, uh, his Bachelor of Arts degree from uh, McAllister College, his JD from SUNY Buffalo Law School. Apparently, he also likes the Buffalo Bills. I got nothing to say about that. I hear they're a fine organization. So let's get after it, as they say in some parts of North America. Here is Sam Dolce with Milestone to talk about contingency fee settlements, fee deferrals, and planning. Hope you enjoy it. Sam Dolce, welcome. Thank you for doing this today. Thank you so much for having me. So let's uh, start with the basics. I've introduced you, I've generally introduced the topic, but we're talking attorney fees. What is an attorney fee structure and what role does it play in an attorney's personal wealth management? Well, a lot of contingency fee attorneys, whether they be mass tort, class action, personal injury, they all know how some years it's feast and other years it's famine. What I like to say is some years there's a really, really good Christmas and other years there's a less good Christmas. Mm -hmm. And so what an attorney fee defer allows you to do is to take that feast and enjoy it for longer so that there's less famine. For instance, if one year you make several million and the next year you make several hundred thousand, instead of taking all that income in one year, you can spread it over a period of time. And so I've seen this in my course of practice. My father was a trial attorney for 35 years. It's a really great wealth management strategy that allows you to take advantage of those big wins and to stretch them over a period of time. One of the key instruments you all work with there is a qualified settlement fund or a QSF. What is that? And within that is the concept of constructive receipts. Can you talk about those? So qualified settlement funds are really interesting vehicles. They started out as DSFs or designated settlement funds, and then Congress updated them to be QSFs. They've been around for decades. And what they're used for is to resolve complex litigation. So they were originally created as a tax tool for defendants so that they could contribute a large amount of money to the qualified settlement fund upon settlement, and then immediately get the tax credit for paying into the QSF. And then how they're used for plaintiffs is that there's ability to take time to plan and figure out who gets what, figure out liens, all those other complex things that happen at settlement. One of the really added benefits of settling cases into a qualified settlement fund for plaintiffs and especially plaintiff attorneys is at that point, there's no constructive receipt on the funds. So if money is paid to a qualified settlement fund, it's a standalone trust that's established as a third-party trustee, a third-party administrator. The law firm does not have the money. There's no actual receipt. There's no constructive receipt. And the IRS taxes income, revenue. Those are funds that are received. So when the funds are within the QSF, no one has them yet. There's no tax event. And so from there, you can do planning. And so what that looks like is a law firm gets a $1 million in fee. It's settled into a QSF. They don't have to take it all right away. They can take a portion of it and then place the rest into what's called a periodic payment obligation. 
commonly referred to as attorney fee deferral or attorney fee structure and spread that over a period of years. And so that's sort of what we're talking about today. So everything sort of starts at the QSF level because that's how you're avoiding receipt of the initial sum. And so you can set up qualified settlement funds around cases, around groups of cases, around thousands of cases, around types of cases. Oftentimes, we'll create them around a law firm that handles a certain type of case. There's a lot of creativity that goes into creating qualified settlement funds. And if you're not really familiar with 468B trusts or QSFs, we should have a conversation. You should really know how these business elements of settlement work if you're handling larger cases. So you're the professional guidance that people would benefit from. You and what, nine other people in the country? No, I don't know how many. It doesn't say, it just seems like a super, super specialty. It's a pretty niche space. I mean, there are a lot of settlements. There's settlements every day. But generally speaking, we work around you know seven, eight, nine-figure settlements. And so while you can pool smaller cases in a qualified settlement fund, we do work with less firms that are sort of like mill firms and more firms that are serious trial attorneys litigating very big cases that are having very serious outcomes. Oftentimes, the planning work done around those for me is most rewarding. So if you're helping a family move on from a tragedy, doing all the effective tax planning and financial planning, that's why I transitioned into this from litigation. So this is helping the individual plaintiffs. Yeah. So it helps both trial attorneys and plaintiffs. Yeah. Oh, and the plaintiffs themselves. I'm sorry. Yeah. You know, when you say plaintiffs, I always think of attorneys, but you're talking about the actual human beings who've brought the case who have been injured. It's able to benefit both. Everyone gets time and space to do their planning. And for clients, they also can structure their fee. And I mean, most trial attorneys are aware that they can structure their fees and they can be structured from the QSF. There's a question here. I'm not sure why I wrote it down because I don't understand it. <laughs> can this help put an attorney's security over their assets? What, I don't, what does that even mean? <laughs> oh, that's a really great question. Okay. You're talking about security over assets. It's probably a very timely question. So I am not a fiduciary. I am an attorney. But I work with a lot of great fiduciaries. So if I misspeak here, please feel free to correct me. But I won't know. The market right now is chaotic <laughs> at best. We've seen some pretty steep falls. Right. So what what does that mean? Right. If you're pulling money in and out of things, if you're moving it all around, it could have literally negative impacts on your portfolio. But what we're able to do through an attorney fee deferral is you're able to secure those funds for a period of years. You can see the numbers direct from the financial advisors, but there's almost like a guarantee you're going to see a return if you keep funds within a deferral for a certain period of time. So what they're able to do is they can actually track the math of it growing, and therefore you can gain security in your finances. So let's say, for instance, you invest funds for one year. There's no guarantee there's going to be a return. But let's say you're able to place those funds into a deferral for a period of 10 or 15 years and then have it pay out over the years of your retirement. Well, guess what? We can actually do that math and show you how much you're going to receive during that time. So there's a higher degree of security in your asset. So let's talk about how attorneys have actually benefited from the use of these funds. There's a few different types of law firms that we work with that really benefit from these. One is the small to medium-sized personal injury firm that's settling cases that are relatively smaller in value, and then all of a sudden, they're going to ring the bell on three or four cases in the same year. Well, what we'll do is we'll create a qualified settlement fund for those cases, and we'll pool those fees together. And so instead of them receiving all that fee in just one year, they can receive a certain portion of it. And of course, they want to bonus themselves out for their hard work. But a great portion of that fee can then be placed into deferral. And that can then continue to fund the firm for the next several years or help the attorney in retirement. Um, and so when you're thinking about the earning cycle of a law firm and of an attorney, 
usually we have our best earning years at the end of our careers. And during that time, we may or may not have been properly planning for the previous few decades for retirement. So we can turn those big wins into deferral accounts that last us through that retirement. So I see that a lot around the smaller to medium-sized personal injury firms. And then around firms that see really large fees, those really successful catastrophic injury attorneys, or top litigators, or mass tort firms, when you may have been waiting for years and years and years for a settlement, and then all of a sudden, it all flows into your firm at once, we're able to sort of ease those ebbs and flows and turn that one-time payment event into a multi-year payment event. And then really, it's about starting point. Mm-hmm. So if you're getting a million-dollar fee and you take all of it up front and then invest the funds, you're going to be hit with, depending on what state you're in, anywhere from a 35 to 50% tax rate. If you're able to take those funds and invest the full weight of them, right? so they're being deferred, you're investing the whole million dollars, well, then you're going to have a greater impact. There's more growth on the account. And so it's not only the tax deduction, but it's actually the ability to have a higher starting point when you're investing the funds. This isn't a big part of your business, but you mentioned I hadn't heard of this, of pooling funds of smaller awards. You can do that within qualified settlement funds. If cases share a certain degree of commonality, they can be pooled together. So let's say you're an attorney, you have a law practice, and your law practice focuses on personal injury, motor vehicle cases, and you work in the state of New York, and all those cases are handled by your firm. And they're all appearing in front of the same groups of judges. So what you're talking about is you have multiple degrees of commonality, same firm, same series of cases, all related to motor vehicle accidents, all being done in a certain jurisdiction, all within a certain state. Those could effectively be pooled into the same qualified settlement fund. Interesting. And so what you're able to do with the fees is let's say they're all $100,000 cases. Well, you're getting $30,000 in fee from each of those. Maybe one isn't enough to really do a lot of great tax planning around. But if you're settling 100 of them, we certainly could do a lot of tax planning around it. So how are firms in your experience typically using these funds and the increased wealth? I mean, obviously some retire or some buy boats, but um, they can also be used, I would think, to to elevate their law practice. So can you tell me what, in your experience, you've seen? That's a really great question. Most law firm owners know how much it costs to run their practice, but they're not necessarily sure how much they're going to earn year over year. And so what they'll do with their fee deferral is they'll create a certain baseline. So if you know that two years from now, it's going to cost $800,000 to run your firm. But this year is when you're seeing the $3 million fee. Well, maybe we make it so that you have a payment of $800,000 three years from now. So you already are confident that you're going to be able to meet payroll that year. And then once you've solidified payroll and all cost expenses, well, the next deferral can take care of retirement. And therefore, you're able to sort of stack these one on top of the other and plan for the entire future of the firm. The other thing that we see is firms that choose to diversify their practices. So they want to expand their practice groups. Maybe they want to start getting involved in mass torts, different ways of changing the way they run their operation. What they'll do is they're getting a $5 million fee, but they don't want to invest in marketing for $5 million worth of cases that year. They want to do half a million dollars every year for the next 10 years. Well, they'll place it all into a deferral. And of course, during that time, that account's seeing growth as well. So it can't all be upside, can it? I mean, what are there potential disadvantages that an attorney should consider in establishing such a fee structure? So there's a few parts. One is when a fee goes into an attorney fee deferral, it goes in as an attorney fee. And when it comes out, it's received as an attorney fee. 
So it's all going to be received as ordinary income, including the growth on the account. That's an important thing to know. Second is that when fees are in a structure, that structure is fixed and determinable. And there's all sorts of savvy practices that are done in the space to try to shift around the basic idea that a structure can be shifted or moved. But the general rule of thumb is that an attorney fee structure, just like a client structure, is going to be a fixed and determinable schedule. So that means if you have a million dollars and you're deferring it for 10 years and taking out in 10 equal payments of 10% of the account, that's a fixed schedule. Mm -hmm. So if you get into year two and you're like, eh, I want to change that. And then year four, you're like, I want to change it again. And then year six, you're like, I'm going to change it again. Well, we were talking about three changes to a fixed schedule in a period of six years. That's inappropriate. What you're doing is you're trading the liquidity on the funds for the tax deferral. And it's important attorneys understand that because the last thing we want to see is someone going over deferring their funds. So when people are receiving a large fee, I typically recommend you're taking some in to run your practice, some to own yourself out, enjoy your life, some to invest in your practice, some into savings that is liquid, mm-hmm. and then some into deferral, right? You don't want to be over deferred. Okay. So if you've got a client or somebody who isn't sure or isn't willing to work in a fixed way, as you said, and they want to change it from year to year, you wouldn't advise that for that kind of attorney. And then some attorneys are going to want liquidity, as you said. So can you talk about that? I mean, what if they suddenly do need funds two years from now? What can you say about those things? It depends on the state. Um, Most states allow for hardship liquidations. It changes state to state. So like really call us and I can provide a summary. I'm not going to go through all 50 states right now. The general idea is that you can liquidate if there's proof of an actual hardship. That's a loose rule of thumb. Just like all things I'm talking about today, it's hard talking about complex tax things on a national basis, right? With that being said, rule of thumb, you should be able to liquidate in case of a hardship. So the house burns down, the firm has a really bad year. We're not going to tell you, no, you we're going to keep your funds forever. We can figure out a way to get you the funds. Generally, what I'm trying to express is... This is for excess money, right? This is for the money that you don't want to be taxed at the higher percentage. This is the money that you know you worked on that case for a period of years. You're seeing above and beyond what you need to run your firm, what you need in your life. That extra money, that's what goes into the fee deferral. The problems that happen is when attorneys are seeing several hundred thousand dollars, they don't have any savings, and they're like, look, I want to defer this. I know it's a great tax benefit. I have consultations with those attorneys and I oftentimes recommend other vehicles, right? There's other solutions. This isn't a one size fits all, but this is for those attorneys that are winning a lot of cases or winning a lot of big cases or having a big payday. They should strongly consider fee deferral. I would think a lot of attorneys would already have financial advisors. How do you work with them? How do might fee structures incorporate or complement things like life insurance? Great question. That's sort of two questions. So I'm going to take the first part and then I'll take the second part. So the first part being, how do we work with your current advisor? Pretty much every child attorney we work with has their own financial advisor. Sometimes it's someone they really like. Sometimes it's someone that they just picked out of, out of the phone book. But with all the... Do people still use phone books? I don't even know. <laughs> they do not. Yeah. Right. So they met on Facebook. I'll say that. Don't meet your financial advisor on Facebook, please. Thank you. <laughs> little, little side bonus tip there. Little, little side bonus tip. <laughs> well, anyways, I'll start that clip over. Yeah, go ahead. But I answered the first part of your question regarding working with attorneys, financial advisors. We have a list of approved financial advisors we've done due diligence on. We also are open to working with other financial advisors attorneys recommend that say they want to work with. Our company, we structure the fee 
we're not actually going to be providing you the investment guidance on the fee. And so that's going to come from your financial advisor. Your financial advisor may have a lot of knowledge about fee deferral. They may not. And so a lot of our time is actually spent educating them and showing them how these accounts work. There are approved lists the vendors know when they've done many of these and their ability to pass a certain test of due diligence is we take it very seriously. So we're happy to work with your financial advisor. We will make sure that they pass our due diligence as well. Some people will come to us with their second cousin who you know works out of the mom's <laughs> basement. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, we're not going to trust them with a multi-million dollar deferral. So we'd have to do our own due diligence. With that being said, we work with advisors across the country. We're happy to work with yours, work with most of the major custodians. So the second cousin in the basement, there's another red flag. So what about insurance, life insurance? How do these structures incorporate or complement that? So I'll just start this by saying I'm not a fiduciary, but I'm happy to talk about this stuff. It's what I spent half my time doing. We have fiduciaries here who can talk about them in depth. For as far as life insurance goes and other sort of like estate planning vehicles within the fee deferral, a lot of times we'll have people who want to prepare for the next generation. We're talking about generational wealth within the fee deferral. So they'll look to purchase whole permanent life insurance through their fee deferral. And the fee deferral makes the actual payments, et cetera. What you're able to see is all sorts of ways of mitigating taxes regarding the generational pass along. So what we're talking about is if the fee deferral itself is contributing to your life insurance policy, and let's say it contributes a million dollars to that life insurance policy that pays out $10 million at the time of your death, and you do pass away before the deferral ends, $9 million of that's passing outside of the estate because it's an insurance payment due to life insurance. You're only going to be taxed on the million dollars you contributed. And so therefore, you're able to pass along a huge generational wealth gain to your future attorneys or your future family. And in the meantime, right, you're only contributing a million dollars into that policy. We see all sorts of really creative ways to use fee deferral to maximize wealth. It's more than just structuring out income, but that's the, that's the base of it. Some people are more conservative investors than others. This sounds to me like it'd be good for conservative investors. But you tell me, what if you're a conservative investor? How does this go with somebody with that kind of an attitude? So the fee deferral changes towards your attitude. So if you want to be the aggressive, the fee deferral itself can be invested in things that are aggressive. Right. So if you're going for a growth portfolio, we can do that. The majority of the attorneys we work with are not trying to do that. The majority of the attorneys we work with are planning for retirement. They're planning for you know future revenue for their firm. They want to have set numbers they know they're going to be able to reach. And so they will have more conservative to moderate portfolios. And that's completely acceptable within the fee deferral. You also could do it through a traditional structure where it's a guaranteed return. You can defer fees through a traditional structure. Interest rates still haven't really bounced back yet, but there's a news article every week about how they're going to raise rates significantly, but they're still pretty low. So that might be an option maybe six months or two years from now. But as of now, we're still seeing most people do investment back just with a more conservative portfolio. What kind of trends are you seeing on how to best implement fee structures to maximize uh, the benefits to the attorney fee awards? I see a lot of people doing firm-wide QSFs right now. That's a really growing trend, I think. So for example, if you're running a personal injury practice and you're focusing on construction, workplace injuries, and you can create a QSF around your law firm and accept those fees directly into your QSF, and then plan around them year over year over year. And that way, your firm can avoid the peaks and valleys and just have an even flow. Um, And so we see a lot of people doing firm-wide QSFs right now. We also, from a fee deferral standpoint, I'm seeing more and more people plan for retirement. Being a trial attorney, like 
you're not really thinking about your 401k a lot. You're mostly just waiting on the big case where you get to plan the 401k. So this is sort of like an unlimited 401k where you get to choose your payment schedule and you can put as much money into it as you want. And there's no age restriction. And so what we see a lot of people doing who are really successful early in their careers is planning for early retirement or people who are successful later in their careers, stretching out those successes to make sure they're going to be protected until age 85 or 90. Again, I guess I'm trying to understand that you say firm-wide and they have to have similarities, right? So usually you want to look at least two degrees of commonality, same firm, same region, or same firm, same region, same case type. That's even stronger. Case type could be you know, tort. I work with a lot of firms that do personal injury and mass torts. All their catastrophic injury cases will go into one QSF. And then for each mass tort they resolve, that'll go into its own QSF. So what you're looking at is you're a large firm and you handle a series of trafficking cases. Those trafficking cases are against, you know, a diocese will create a QSF around those 500 trafficking cases. Then all of a sudden, you're also resolving a single event case. Well, that'll go into your firm-wide QSF. Does that make sense? Makes total sense. I gotcha. Any other trends you wanted to highlight or anything else you wanted to say about these? You've covered a lot of ground here. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I, I can be a little long-winded. No, no, you weren't. <laughs> That's not what I meant to say. You've given us a lot of detail, but is there anything else that you feel like attorneys should know about what you do? I think it's the planning for the clients. I mean, the main reason why I do this work is because as trial attorneys, we view there as being two options at settlement. You give them a check or you stick them into a new structure. I view that as inadequate, frankly. I think that we need to be resolving these cases in ways that are best going to benefit the people we're meant to serve, right? It's a service profession. We've done a really good job of figuring out how to maximize damages and win a trial. We spend a lot of time doing that. But as attorneys, we don't necessarily spend a lot of time on, okay, what happens next? And so what we like to sort of answer that with is let's resolve the case into a qualified settlement fund. Let's work with the client for the next several weeks, maybe even months, and figure out what they need. Right. So it's plaintiff centered, outcome oriented. What does that individual family want and need from this settlement? Because we all know as trial attorneys, it is never worth it. Even in the ones where it is enough money, it certainly wasn't worth it. What we need to do is help these families move on from the tragedy and really do proper financial planning. So we put into place, you know, we have accountants, fiduciaries, attorneys. We look at all the options and figure out what the family needs and then provide that and that information so they can make an informed decision. A lot of the people we work with are lay people. They don't know what a trust is, but they do know, okay, the money can sit here and you can figure out what you need to do. It's really about expressing this in the right languages, in the right context, allowing people to make informed decisions that'll benefit them in their life. And so what we're able to do to a qualified settlement fund is give that time and space, and then lawyers can defer their fees as well. And so really, mm -hmm. it's a win for everybody. Sounds like a great service. Well, Sam Dolce, thank you very much for talking with me about this today. Tom, I'm so happy to have been here. If you ever need me to come back, I'm happy to scream this from the mountaintops. <laughs> the more sophisticated we are as a trial bar, the better the outcomes for everybody, including the plaintiffs. And so we really need to be thinking about the financial issues that face our firms. And turning fee deferral is one great solution. And that concludes this episode of the Emerging Litigation Podcast. I want to thank Sam Dolce from Milestone. And you can learn more about them at their website, which is Milestone7th, all one word, Milestone7th.com. This is Tom Hagee, your host, and on behalf of myself, of course, and my company, HB, and my other company, Custom Legal Content, and our partners at Law Street Media and Fastcase. Thanks for listening today. 
Oh, by the way, this is also, uh, you know, this is the sister. This is the audio sister. <laughs> Everybody has an audio sister. This is the audio companion to the journal on emerging issues in litigation. If you're interested in uh, participating in that journal, maybe contributing a piece, uh, I'd welcome it. You can write to me at editor at litigationconferences.com. You can write to me about this podcast too at editor at litigationconferences.com. Thanks.